Verum Sports. Hello and welcome to Verum Sports Sportcast. Six through seven on your Saturday evening. And where else would you rather be? Each and every single week, we debate, dissect, and indeed analyze a sporting topic of your choosing. Because, of course, it's your show. It is, honestly, every single bit as much as it is ours. And thank you, as always, for providing this week's topic of discussion. And it's an interesting one. It always is. Uh, We are going to be delving into managers, maybe charismatic managers, maybe influential managers. But uh, what I almost maybe consider the anti-Mourinho's. Everybody knows I'm a big fan of a special one. And one of those reasons that I love that man is he is so special at bagging silverware and Spurs top the league at the moment. Uh, But I call this one the anti-Mourinho because we are looking into those managers who are maybe very influential, maybe very successful in different worlds, but claimed no silverware. So again, a big thank you to the Verum Sports Sportcast listeners for this topic. Uh, Before I introduce to the show, friend of the show, the iconic, the legendary machine. Jason McKenna. I just want to remind everybody to keep attending to social media because over the next few days, you'll notice our next few choices. They're going to be Christmas themes, Christmas cracking uh, Verum Sport podcasts over the next few weeks and sportcast shows. So keep your eyes all over social media. Continue to keep involved with us. Tweet at Verum Sport for your favorite options. They're going to be coming up in the next few days. But for here and indeed now, it's panning across to the iconic machine, Jason McKenna. Jason, how are you? You keeping well? And I'll tell you what, Merry Christmas to you, my man. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you too, Tony. I'm feeling very full of festivities at the moment. The tree is up in the house. Uh, I'm making a little kind of plan of what to watch on Christmas Day, Boxing Day with the family, and we're getting the food in as well. So really in the positive spirits there. Yeah, I, I couldn't be any better at the moment. You know, in the context, I'm trying to keep a positive outlook on it, and that's what we're doing here as well today, bringing some great sports broadcasting to keep people afloat during these times. But yes, we're talking about the best managers not to win a trophy today, and we did have quite a few suggestions on social media but I do think it's a hard choice it's a hard one to bring in and some of the ones that people suggested I had to remove because people Mm. actually uh, that they actually had won an obscure trophy here and there maybe a league cup maybe an FA cup you know uh, so there was a, a Spanish one I can't remember their name but a few people suggested him and unfortunately I had to discount him. But these are the ones that I could put in. And again, Jason, just really super quickly and I'm not going to kind of spoil it because it's going to emerge. But I've got to tell you, one of my selections has also got silverware in his CV. Actually, quite a few, <laughs> uh, but I'm going to justify his selection. Um, and I'm just going to explain that in a matter of a few moments. But again, appreciate you taking a hard line stance to this, obviously rejecting some interesting um, um, suggestions. But what have you been able to clear under the broad parameter 
successful managers devoid of silverware from our <laughs> listeners. Well, I tell you what, maybe I should admit to a felony there as well in terms of, of this discussion is because on one of my points, I've got six managers. They all might have won at club level, but I'm focusing on international level there as well. So maybe we've both broken the rules a little bit, Tony. But the ones that the listeners have sent in is Mauricio Pochettino, Kevin Keegan, Brendan Rogers, David Moyes. Somebody now this one I did include because you know what I love the man himself Bobby mm. Robson they said he did win trophies but never the Premier League so maybe in that sense he didn't achieve all that he could in the the Premier League and then one person uh, had a shout out to Marcello Bielsa but I did have to say there that he did win three Argentinian Primera divisions but still a great great one there and then we were inundated with this one. Local hero, Graham Taylor. I mean, you know, he, he was one that really revolutionised Watford, brought them to the brink of success quite a few times. But unfortunately, he did win silverware in a sense, lower down the divisions, mm -hmm. but not at that top, top level there. Uh, any of those that you want to talk about quickly, Tony, before we get into the show? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, interestingly enough, one of those I'm actually going to profile in depth a bit later um so i'm gonna draw a line under that just for now just consider that a, a teaser if you would um but um another great argentinian and obviously maybe people will know i'm sure you might that i am a leeds united follower wouldn't necessarily pitch myself as a hardcore fan i am delighted that they are back in the promised land of the premier league doing uh, reasonably well so far so I've got to give a little bit of a nod to Bielsa. As you say, never won much, really, in a much-feated managerial career. Heavily influential. Uh, Pochettino, of course, uh, played under him and did one silverware under him as a player in Argentina. Um, but that high-energy, high-buzz style of play, which, when it clicks, is just a joy to witness. Also, over the fullness of a season, I think does fatigue players. And I think it's for that reason, perhaps, that his teams haven't claimed as much silverware as his much featured managerial genius uh, maybe suggested he could have won. Um, so that's a really interesting one. Um, I've got to give a big shout out to Bobby Robson. Uh, again, we spoke on our 100th episode uh, podcast wise with the wonderful um, John McKenna, no relation to your good self, who, of course, is a documentary maker par excellence and indeed put together Bobby Robson more than a manager. And, you know, again, the influence that he had on not least of which my man, Jose, uh, and all the trophies that he's won and really gave Jose his first introduction to football at Barcelona, where Jose was his translator. But again, that documentary is wonderful. Do check it out if you haven't seen it already. Uh, and it really is just an insight into quite simply how adored he was by so many people across the footballing world, panning different cultures. And yeah, you know, maybe not many trophies in the cabinet, but what he did with Ipswich early in his managerial career, really revolutionising this rather uh, sleepy pr uh, provincial type club into a European force was astonishing. And so, you know, I just think he certainly um, is mega successful and I couldn't really consider him too heavily under the microscope in this chat, albeit a great shout. Um, talking documentaries, again, John McKenna's work, 
Um, again, he referenced this in that 100th episode podcast. And I saw it actually at the Odyssey just last Saturday. Um, his most recent documentary, fascinating watch. Do get a uh, watch it if you can. It's called Finding Jack Charlton. And Jack Charlton, of course, um, well, Cup winner with England. Um, I think he did win some silverware in his managerial career. But he's most famous, of course, for what he did with Ireland, taking Ireland to their first um, World Cup and also doing uh, qualifications as well for various European championships. So a tremendous record, a real iconic manager. But again, not much in the way of silverware from his managerial uh, time um, down the leagues. Uh, he you know, was at Newcastle, he was at Middlesbrough, also Sheffield Wednesday, uh, but not much silverware, although heavily influential. That's another wor uh, worthy name. But yeah, they're my thoughts, Jason. And I think it's now more than fitting for you to introduce and profile your first uh, manager, forward slash managers, maybe, who very successful, though they may have been, claimed little or no silverware. Yeah, the first one I want to actually start off with is somebody that I think is perennially maligned, often almost made a joke of by the footballing community, a man who is seen as often boring for his style, but he's consistent and he brings stability to those that he's managed. I'm talking about Mr. Big Sam Allardyce and you know, looking at the clubs he's managed, apart from maybe a couple of incidents, he's always been a really strong, positive manager in, in creating something good at wherever he's gone. Uh, and the only one that I would say is negative in his history is his Newcastle jaunt. And then I would even contextualise that and say that was when Mike Ashley came in and he, he kicked Sam Allardyce out within the first year of his managerial reign at Newcastle. You know, I would say idiocy. But anyway, the highlight of his career, and I'm sure you remember this one well, Tony, is his, his jaunt with Bolton Wanderers. You know, he brought them up from the championship to being a European outfit. I mean, that seems worlds away now with the way that they're languishing, almost went out of business. Really heartbreaking stuff. But, you know, they narrowly missed out uh, Premier League promotion in his first season and mm. then they reached the League Cup and FA Cup semi-finals in his first season they they almost made the 2000 FA Cup final but 2001-2004 was an amazing period which he brought stability to the club he nailed them as a Premier League side they were tough to break down and there were some amazing elements of talent acquisition some good football there but really, the highlight came 2004-2005 when he managed to secure UEFA Cup football at the end of that season. So 2006, um, they were actually playing in Europe. Bolton Wanderers were a European side. This seems almost like a joke, this laughable fantasy now. But when he did eventually leave the side in 2007, they were actually sat fifth, pushing for Champions League football. And the only reason why he left was because the team didn't really back him up after all these amazing years of dedication that he gave to the side. And he, he wanted to make a few more shrewd signings. And looking at his history, I would have given Big Sam the money. I would have said, you know what? 
he has really kind of controlled this club so, so well. He, he deserves this chance to, to crack Champions League football. Let me say yeah. it again. Bolton Wanderers were on the cusp of Champions League. Top four. Ridiculous kind of stuff. And who knows what kind of history would have happened if Bolton had secured that top four place. On top of this, he managed all this creativity and bringing brilliance out Bolton through a time when they were building a new stadium. So whatever he did had to be through, almost like Arsenal have had to suffer recently, through really tight financial constraints of building the Reebok Stadium. So, yeah, just quickly on that one, Tony, you know, I'll go through more points about Big Sam, but do you remember this glorious period? You know, JJ Okocha, so good they named him twice. Uh, there was a lot of talent in that side there that Sam brought the best out of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really interesting shout. I want to, uh, I'm sure you're going to reference it. I'd be fascinated to take your, or hear your take rather, on his. England tenure, which of course was tainted with corruption allegations, etc., etc., some of which uh, kind of were there in his earlier career too. But just focusing on that that Bolton period, which really made his name as a manager. You know, again, you're right, the uh, JJ period there. Um, but he also um, brought in um, sort of French World Cup winners and a whole heap of others. So he had an eye for talent. And, you know, his ability to kind of get Bolton uh, this kind of amalgamation of players from around the world playing very organised football with an element of uh, Elan too. Because I think you're right. One of the um, kind of critiques uh, amongst pundits of uh, the, uh, uh, you know, much-loved Big Sam is that he's a long ball merchant. But, Jason, you'll understand this as well as the next man that in actuality, he was a very early proponent of data analysis and kind of tactical awareness. And if you actually look in the, kind of the, and crunch the data, particularly in that Bolton time, yeah, they were direct, but they were also, you know, playing their football in the correct areas of the, play, of the, of the uh, field, that they were aware of how to take advantage of dead ball situations. And this kind of attention to detail this minutiae, it's very much uh, de now, as you appreciate, isn't it? But back in those days, um, I wouldn't say it was unique. I think Wenger, of course, uh, was influential in bringing this uh, to uh, English football. But certainly Sam Allardyce, big Sam, uh, really was a master at utilising all these little details and these facts and how to apply them, not just data for data's sake but really to use that data to ensure that all the players in his Bolton team, who, as you say, trotted off to Europe, no less, um, understood their role, but more importantly, how their role was and where they needed to be in order to maximise the, the talents within that team. So in many ways, despite that slightly black mark on him as just a kind of, you know, who fit up merchant as a manager, he had very, very strong footballing philosophy and a very good understanding, first and foremost, as much as we call it the beautiful game, it's pointless, really, losing matches 7-5. He understood as a, as a defender in his own playing career the importance of, to use the uh, much hackneyed phrase, being solid at the back and then applying that 
to these these kind of data analysis, um, this uh, sports science understanding, made him and his Bolton Wanderers team a really tough nut to crack. Nobody liked to go and visit them. And that was a period in their history um, which has been unsurpassed. So definitely have so much admiration for Big Sam and his managerial prowess. And I'm sure uh, on those points, Jason, you can elaborate for us. Yeah, I'll get on to the data science bit because I think that's another thing that's really overlooked and, and under described in the narratives around Big Sam. But yeah, I, I can sense your kind of warm feelings towards him as well because he is a larger than life character. You know, he lives up to the name of Big Sam. And I think sometimes people almost take him as a joke character, but he really was, you know, a pioneer in his time. Now, as mentioned a little bit earlier, Newcastle was his next venture after Bolton. And, you know, some see it as a step up. Uh, Newcastle obviously being a bigger team in terms of fan base and size and stadium. But it didn't work out from there. And, and as I said, it coincided with Mike Ashley kind of having an iron mm -hmm. fist over the club. And eventually, he, he didn't even last the whole season. And they replaced him with Kevin Keegan. And, you know, God love Kevin Keegan, but he's not a consistent man. He's not the kind of person that you can kind of come in and say, he'll steady the ship. He's He's an anarchist kind of manager. And if anything, during that tumultuous period, I think Big Sam with the financial constraints that Mike Ashley has put on the club, would have been the perfect man to, you know, steady the ship. I think it was, he was the perfect man at the perfect time. And it, it was really crazy. Newcastle might not have had all the problems that they have now because of that. So after that ill-fated, small, very tiny jaunt to, to Newcastle, we saw him take over at Blackburn Rovers. And again, he just showed his ability to man-manage, get the best out of a tough situation because he exceeded expectations. He joined a Blackburn Rovers who were at the time in a very tough financial position and mm -hmm. he got a 15th place finish. Then in the next uh, summer period, so he sealed that 15th Premier League survival. They had a fire sale of the club's best assets and the next season he got 10th. I mean, most clubs would have probably gone down, been relegated, but he secured 10th in a 2009-10 season and another League Cup semi-final. Again, always elusive, that silverware. But maybe, arguably, he did more than get silverware for these clubs. He secured their futures whilst he was there. Then, again, an owner of the club, a terrible situation occurred where the Venkis came up to Sam Allardyce and actually sacked him in December 2010. Uh, Rovers were placed 13th in the league, obviously, you know, not top 10, not European mm. like he was at Bolton Wanderers, but it was secure. And the next season, they were relegated and haven't been in the Premier League since. Again, I think this is short-sightedness by yeah. a couple of owners there. Uh, I don't think Bolton actually sacked Sam Allardyce. I think he kind of left because... He'd, he'd flirted with the idea of Newcastle, but Newcastle and Blackburn Rovers can really kick themselves in the, in the foot over these situations there because both clubs have had really tumultuous times since. And I think if Allardyce had stayed at either, it would have been a much better story for them. 
Then the next project, again showing that it wasn't about money, it wasn't about size of clubs. Big Sam actually took on the relegated West Ham, took them out mm-hmm. of the championship, and again secured the future of the club. Now, during the noughties, uh, West Ham were really a yo-yo club. You know, they were going up and down between the championship, or as it was known, you know, for a while, the first division and into the Premier League. And Sam Allardyce kind of ushered in an era of West Ham are a Premier League club. They never really looked like they were going down under him. But this time, the protestation, the criticism actually came from the fan base. And I think the Hammers really have to look at themselves and and look at the fact that they forget the amazing work he did for that club. Uh, and eventually, at the 2013-14 season, he left by mutual accord in 12th position. Um, but... I think they hounded him so much, almost bullied him out of the club. And and I I think it was a really lack of respect for somebody who Mm. had seen the the most, uh, I wouldn't say prestigious, but calm period that West Ham had had for a very long time. And he brought in some great talent as well. You know, the person that really has, has pulled the strings quite recently, Aaron Cresswell, was one of his top signings. Cheikh Kuyate, who's doing bits at Crystal Palace, but he was a solid player in the midfield of West Ham. You know, these are signings that Sam brought into the club. Then after that, he managed Sunderland, Crystal Palace, Everton, all saving them from football perils of, of different magnitudes. You know, Sunderland mm-hmm. and Crystal Palace were saved from relegation. Everton were saved from, you know, embarrassment, really. But you have mentioned it. He had the failed foray with England and uh, allegations of malpractice. Not going to defend him over that because even he himself has come out and and said that what he did was was bad and incorrect. And it's a shame because, again, I think that almost plays into the narrative of, you know, that they talk about Harry Redknapp being a wheeler dealer. But both of those managers, I think, fall under that almost laughable, oh, you know, it's Big Sam, it's it's Harry Redknapp, almost laughing at them. But actually, the two of them were really good with little clubs, pushing them uh, onto another level. And the, the exact comparison can be made with Harry Redknapp and Tottenham Hotspur. I think he made them into the Champions League side, almost passing it over for then Pochettino to take over. Mm-hmm. And Sam Allardyce, unfortunately, he got closest with Bolton Wanderers, but no club since has really given him the time or the money uh, to to really do that. So over his years, he managed the 39.4% win ratio, but that's all he need to stay in the Premier League. When you're a little club, it's a bit like Charlton Athletic a few years ago as well. Yeah. They kind of got ideas ahead of themselves in many ways, build incrementally, build up and up and up rather than kind of making these jumps. And and a lot of these clubs, you know, that Big Sam was in charge of, that he steadied the ship. He he really did a fantastic job of bringing them good quality Premier League football. It might have been long ball, but he was building something there. And even at West Ham, he actually tried to play really good attacking football in that last season. Maybe if they'd given him more time, you never know. This kind of really good run that they're seeing now under David Moyes might have come four or five seasons earlier. So, you know, it's 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 quite an annoying one. But you mentioned it, and I think one of the biggest travesties, 
that is overlooked, neutered with this boring football narrative is, is his pioneering footballing knowledge. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I just need to take a drink of water. Hang on. Yeah, so the story actually of his pioneering football data comes from his days playing in the USA at the Tampa Bay Rowdies. And he was exposed to the world of American sports science. This was something that was alien to British football at the time and which was a huge part of his success at the clubs that he managed. Sam Allardyce was so good at man management, knowing the foibles of each player, but at the same time, he knew about data. And I think you'll love this, Tony. He actually learned from Mr. Moneyball himself, Billy Bean. You know, he had a few meetings with him. He he actually got to know him because Sam, you know, liked American sports. He liked baseball a lot and he loved the kind of data aspect. And, and he questioned, why can't I bring that to football? So even Sir Alex Ferguson himself was impressed with the huge numbers of individuals that Allardyce had working for him in the background. And after one Ma Manchester United visit to the Reebok Stadium, Sir Alex Ferguson actually commented that he was taken aback by the number of boffins sitting at mm. computers. These weren't traditional people that you see at football clubs, but data numbers were central to his Bolton plan and elsewhere. He was one of the first people to use ProZone, uh, now we talk about Optostat, StatsBomb, yep. all these kind of data sets. But at the turn of the new millennium, Allardyce was one of the first proponents of data in football. And yeah, he, he accommodated numerous members of staff that was described as a, a Bolton Wanderers war room. They had plasma screen TVs, huge computers. And they tracked everything, fitness levels, pass completion, number of sprints, tackles, interceptions, loads of crucial pieces of data. And I and... bet they had a few XG ratings on the go, Jason. I bet <laughs> they did. Well, the funny thing is as well, it, you, you laugh about that, but Big Sam also had a way that he would punish and also reward people that took high-quality shots. And it was an early form of, of XG kind of shots. You know, we laugh, obviously, about the XG stuff, but Big Sam was well aware of points of maximum opportunity. They called them POMO uh, in his day. And, uh, you know, a journalist, Blair Newman, called it almost comically precise, but he was, he was fastidious with his data. And this is something that people overlook when they call him boring and this and that. But really, if you look at him, he was, he was almost a quiet revolutionary anarchist mm -hmm. in many ways tearing up the football rule book yes he could have probably played maybe more f you know fluid football but you have to remember the clubs that he was working with the data was telling him that he didn't have a big budget he couldn't really play beautiful barcelona style football not yet anyway maybe maybe he could have if he you know brought Bolton into the Champions League, had that kind of money, that checkbook. But that all takes time. And I think this is one of the things that people kind of rush it. And again, I think something that you'll love, and you might know him, but during his time at Bolton, the performance director was somebody called Mike Ford. He was at Chelsea, but then he became an NFL performance analysis. Uh, Gavin Flagg, 
started as a performance analyst for Sam Allardyce. Now he's Manchester City's global lead for talent management. I mean, th- mm-hmm. this is ridiculous. And I know that we love Mourinho and we can say that maybe Wenger revolutionised diet, Mourinho revolutionised tactics. But I would say for the man that Mourinho described as playing Victorian football, I would say that Sam was probably playing in the year 3000 rather than 2000 when he joined the Premier League. You know, he was really, really ahead of his time. And this is why I put him in here, because he is one of the best managers not to win a trophy. And I think it saddens me that his footballing credentials are questioned when what he did at so many clubs was was miracle work. But it was all based on his genius. So... I can't wax lyrical enough about Big Sam. I really love the guy. And it, it seems weird, you know, for for almost the football purist that I am. You know, I love the Barcelonas, the Cruyffs. But for me, I think he falls under that because he was a pragmatic purist in the sense that he knew his team's limitations. And that's what we praise Mourinho for. He knows what his team are good at. He knows what the opposition are good at. And he plays to those strengths. And Big Sam knew that week in, week out. So, yeah, that that's why I put him as one of the best managers not to win a trophy, Tony. And I think you share that kind of almost love for Big Sam, don't you? I totally do. I have so much admiration for him. And again, I think you've explained it really well. There isn't much to be added. But I just think if you ask most people, they wouldn't necessarily uh, speak in such um, glowing terms. And he richly deserves that. Um, Who knows what he might have achieved if people have kept faith with him. Uh, I'm just going to draw a line under the England, uh, well, you know, record. I mean, one game, one win, can't fault that. But obviously, I couldn't build upon it either for uh, reasons we've briefly alluded to. I just have a lot of respect for the man. And I just think sometimes we've said this many occasions, Jason, that you don't necessarily appreciate what you've got until you don't have it anymore. If you look at the fates of some of these other teams, you know, Sunderland, where he studied the ship, I know West Ham are on a bit of a uh, trending up at the moment. Everton obviously have taken some time, um, you know, to get a manager in place with the kind of gravitas that um, Allardyce could boast. Um, I just think he was an innovator. I think he achieved phenomenal things, albeit without much silverware. But I would love your views on Big Sam. Tweet us at Verulam Sports. Could he have done more? Do his um, allegations oftentimes proven? Um, Do they just leave a perennial bad taste in the mouth, meaning that all the other innovations and all the other man management skills that there's no question he could uh, boast fall slightly by the wayside. Uh, Jason and I are big Sam Allardyce proponents, but if you'd like to take umbrage with that and have your views on him, dearly, I'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at Verulam Sports. Uh, I'm going to introduce my first manager uh, into this piece in just a moment. Again, one I referenced earlier tonight because the guy does have silverware. You've got to give him his dues for it. So I'll we'll talk all through it in a moment. But just make sure you're sticking to uh, 92.6 FM. Radio Verulam, all Saturday night. After we go off the airwaves at 7 p.m. 
you're in for a treat. It's just an hour of eclectic music in the music mega mix. Uh, music from all genres, all decades. There will be something for you. Stick tuned to that. After which, it's the ever cool Dave Ellis keeping you in the groove with the Soul Show, eight through midnight. Everything that you need from the world of soul, blues, and indeed R&B and all between. He'll keep you entertained and he'll keep you grooving. Eight through ten, the Soul Show with Dave Ellis. Then the Godfather, Derek Staines, is going to keep at the reins and keep you entertained throughout your Saturday evening um, on Saturday late date. Ten through midnight so keep a date with 92.6 fm or listening through the internet or your smart devices all saturday and evening lots of high caliber radio uh, to feast upon um again before i introduce my next manager with no premier league silverware somewhere elsewhere i will justify it um but of course we mentioned there big sam a managerial uh, legend of the premier league love him or loathe him uh, we are of course each and every single premier league weekend encourage you to get involved with our uh, premier league predictions uh the verm sport premier league prediction league runs each and every single week it's very very simple Three points for the exact correct scoreline. One point if you get the right results, but maybe he's out by a goal or two. And nothing in this game. Nil point if you get it completely wrong. But of course, you punditry genius, you. I know you are. You're getting three points each and every single week, each and every single game. And I want to see that. I want you to prove it to us. So throughout the Premier League season, continue to tweet at Verdum Sport with your Premier League predictions and see if you could do better than us here in the Verdum Sport Sportcasting Premier League prediction team. And I tell you, it's all changed at the top. Still plenty of football ahead in that marathon, uh, not the Usain Bolt sprint. But my goodness me, got to give big respect to our colleague Matthew Turvey, who had a blinder last week. It's all changed at the top. Matthew Turvey secured 17 points, including 12 from four correct results, uh, meaning he goes back to the top. He was the early pace setter. He has 79 points. The voice of the Saints, Graham Griffin, I'm sure you heard him today commentating on our Saints. Um, he is in second place with 73 points. The machine, Jason McKenna, was in the lead up until this week, has faded slightly, but watch out for him. He will always be there or thereabouts. He has 72 points at the moment. And then I'm taking a tortoise approach to this marathon. I'm in contention, but uh, faded slightly. I'm in fourth with 71 points. With Neil Stock, our most recent acquisition, uh, still in the game, trailing though he is, he is at the moment, on 59 points. But you, you amazing punditry guru that you, know, that you know you are, and I know you are too. I know you can beat us, and I'd like you to prove it. So tweet at Verulam Sports, email us sports at radioverulam.com throughout the Premier League season with your predictions. Three points for the exact correct scoreline. One point for the right results, but out by a goal or two. Nothing, zero in our game for the incorrect results, but it won't be you, that one. It's going to be at least one point. I think it's going to be three for you. So show it to us, prove it to us. And now it's time for my first manager to be introduced to this week's topic. Managers with no silverware. <clears throat> I cheated. I did. He's bagged silverware, quite a bit of it, actually, if you come to think about it. But I simply had to get Gordon Strachan into this list. I simply had to. Uh, I'm going to justify it, but let me just explain uh, the, the Gordon Strachan, if you've never encountered him, I'm sure, as a fan of sports, that name is very familiar to you. 
Gordon Strachan is an OBE, well-deserved. Uh, born in February 1957, he was an outstanding player who played over 600 league games, 635 to be precise. He bagged 138 goals, playing initially as a bit of a winger and in his latter career more of a holding midfielder. He earned 50 caps for Scotland and also scored five goals for his national team. Um, Strachan's final on-field action back in 1997 in the Premier League was for Coventry City and he was aged 40, 42 months and 24 days. At the time, back in 97, that was the oldest outfield player to play in the Premier League. He, in his playing career, as I say, it was a very storied and very successful one. He claimed multiple domestic league and cup honours in Scotland uh, for Aberdeen. He began his career in, at Dundee. He'd also claimed the 1983 European Cup Winners' Cup and the European Super Cup with Aberdeen. Uh, regular sportcast listeners may recall we analysed Sir Alex Ferguson in our, our Sporting Records chat last time out. And Ferguson was, of course, overseeing those successes for Strachan on the pitch. Uh, he'd also claim the 1985 FA Cup for Manchester United. And as a skipper, He'd um, lead Leeds United to the 1989-1990 second division title. And then the last ever first division title before, of course, football began the following season with the inception of the Premier League. And as I say, he finished his playing days at Coventry. Uh, his first managerial role was actually at Highfield Road with the Coventry team. And he took the helm in 1997. He would help Coventry to the quarterfinals of the 97-98 FA Cup. Coventry, though, were relegated at the end of the 2000 and 2001 season. And after fan and rest, he was sacked just five matches into what was billed as their bounce-back season, 2001-2002. However, Strucker was only out of work for a matter of weeks. He's back in the managerial hot seat, taking over from the sacked Stuart Gray at Southampton. The Saints, not of St. Albans, but of Saint, uh, Southampton. After a disastrous start to the campaign for Southampton that year, there were many pundits tipped for the drop. But Strachan took over the role, as I say, quite early in the piece and totally reversed the team's fortunes. And they would eventually finish very comfortably in mid-table, finishing up in 11th place. The Saints continued to flourish under Strachan's stewardship, finishing eighth in 2002-2003 and were beaten by the Machines Gunners 1-0 in that year's FA Cup final. But because Arsenal, I'm sure Jason remembers this, had already qualified for the following year's Champions League, Southampton actually earned a UEFA Cup slot. We talked about Bolton trotting into Europe. Well, the Saints' halos got to shine in a European context, uh, which is rare and to be cherished for their fans. In February 2004, Strachan actually resigned as Southampton manager. You might remember this, Jason. He'd already decided to take a break from the game at the end of that season after all this success for Southampton. But it was actually leaked to the press. The press got wind of that. And instead of kind of 
going through a lot of brouhaha, a lot of controversy, controversy and really kind of impacting, no doubt, as it would have done on the players on the field. As soon as the press got wind of this, he actually decided to take a break, move away from the game and ensure that Southampton had the elements of control and stability, which a team like them absolutely require. As I say, I'm aware of cheated here because Strachan then uh, moved up to Scotland to take over the helm at Celtic after a 16-month hiatus from the game, taking over from Martin O'Neill. And you know what? He oversaw an absolutely amazing run in his time up at Celtic. He actually became only the third Celtic manager all time to steer the club to three straight league titles. He'd also win uh, Scottish Cup titles in 06 and 07 and three Scottish League Cup crowns. He'd also take Celtic to the round of 16 in the 07-08 Champions League and actually notably claim the scalps of uh, previous winners Milan, teams like Besiktas in that run. So, look, that's a great CV. The topic tonight is successful managers with no trophies. Strachan clearly can claim a whole heap from that time at Celtic. As I say, the third manager only in Celtic's history to bag three in a row. Brendan Rodgers, of course, I think has equaled that, maybe even surpassed it. And I don't want to diminish Scotland, but I'm focused in on really his role in the Premier League and accordingly no silverware in that run. And quite frankly, just before I finish up, I'm going to tease. I just wanted to include Strachan for some of his wonderful quotes. I'm going to tell you a few in a moment and I think they alone kind of mean that um, title of our topic be damned I wanted Gordon Strachan in there uh, anyway after that great run um, trophy where uh, where laden time up in Celtic he moved to Middlesbrough uh, but he claimed no silverware here uh, he'd actually leave the club in 2010 2011 and I really like this I think it shows a great element of his character he voluntarily tore up his own uh, contract, having underperformed in his own head. And that meant that he would claim no compensation and the club could just continue moving on. Very rare, uh, very rare now, very rare then, very rare all time. But, you know, you so most of the managers, when they're under pressure, they will take the paycheck because obviously that's what contracts are designed to build in. I don't begrudge that to anybody. I would never like to manage. It's great being an armchair punditry and a broadcaster from lovely warm studios. It's one of the toughest roles in all of sports. But I just think that's a real credit to the character of Gordon Strachan. Strachan then became Scotland's manager in 2013, the manager of the national team. But he'd failed to secure qualification for either the World Cup in 2014, the Euros of 2016 or the World Cup of 2018 and subsequently would resign in October 2017. So no silverware there at the national level. Overall, his managerial career, over 215 games for Cov and a win percentage of 38, uh, 32.8. At the Saints of Southampton, over 100 uh, games, 110, with a win percentage of 35.9. And that wonderful run at Celtic, 182 games, with a massively impressive win percentage of 67%. That win percentage ratio dropped at that slightly uh, unhappy period at Middlesbrough 
only winning 28.2% uh, of the time. And at Scotland, almost a 50% win ratio, but again, failing to claim qualification for either the World Cup of 2014, the World Cup of 2018, sandwiched with another failure to take Scotland's Euro 2016. So, yeah, there are silverware in Gordon Strachan's uh, cabinet, all attained at Celtic, as well as a glittering playing career. But in the Premier League status, a FA Cup final for Southampton, an FA Cup quarter final also for Coventry City, but not a great deal else. But what you could always rely on with Gordon Strachan was wonderful, honest um, analysis post-game in what is all too often a drab post-game media world. He wore his heart on his sleeve and was never, ever less than honest. And if you're bored, you've got nothing better to do, or you just want to entertain yourself, just Google Gordon Strachan managerial quotes. There's loads of them. I've just picked out two here. I think this one is actually genius, quite frankly. It operates on a myriad of levels, but check this out. A reporter asked, can we have a quick, quickly the operative word, please? Strachan, quick as a flash, responded, velocity. I just love that. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, subsequently also asked, whilst at Southampton, do you think James Beattie deserves to be in the England squad? As always, demonstrating that quick silver uh, wit, he responded, I don't care, I'm Scottish. And they're just a few choice ones. Seriously, have some fun. Find Gordon Strachan on YouTube and you will uh, just be entertained. A very charismatic man, a very entertaining man, a great player in his day, a very good manager with silverware at Celtic, but nothing throughout his time in the Premier League. For all of those reasons, he is one of my favourite managers with no English silverware. Jason, your thoughts on Gordon Strachan? Yeah, I love Gordon. Uh, he's, he's one of those people, you know, I think he's a very principled man. As you mentioned there, you know, the incident with Middlesbrough kind of signifies that, that he'd signed a long-term contract. He didn't need to leave. He, he didn't have to tear it up, but he did so. And I always felt that he was a very honest, true man to himself. He, he never wanted to mince his words, he never wanted, you know, to, to play it safe in that aspect. And he did bring out some great football at some little clubs, you know, he, he's very comparable to Allardyce in the sense of achieving a lot with smaller sides. And I, I have so much respect for him. Again, it's a sad one. Obviously, he did so well with Celtic that, in a sense, he, he kind of surpasses Sam Allardyce in that sense, that he actually did win something. But to the same extent, it just, it makes me sad that he couldn't do it in English football where, you know, his biggest days are kind of remembered. And, you know, even though Scotland didn't succeed in qualifying for a tournament, he still had a pretty hefty, you know, nearly 50% win ratio with that side. That wasn't a very gifted Scotland group of individuals you know mm. they didn't have the likes of Andy Robertson John McGinn I think you know at the moment the the current Scotland manager if if it was Gordon Strachan probably would be doing much more with those players um, he, he's one of the mavericks of football management he's one of those individuals uh, maybe a bit more appealing in terms of his amazing kind of character than Allardyce mm. 
but to the same extent that, that they're both amazing individuals in that sense. And um, I think, did you mention it as well, that obviously he was under Ferguson at that Aberdeen squad. That's where he plied a lot of his trade. Uh, he was the you know a core part of that team that lifted the European and Scottish Premier Division. So, you know, no wonder he was a good manager himself. He learnt off one of the best. So, Gordon Strachan, you know, hats off to you. And I love the shout there. And I think... You know what? I I won't be uh, I won't be pernickety, and I'll I'll allow that you chose that one as well, there, Tony. But yeah, great choice and kind of highlighting maybe an undervalued member of the uh, you know great lineage of Premier League uh, managers. Again, like I say, he was an innovator. He was very uh, progressive in his managerial style and liked uh, bright football. Um, but for me, it was just his character. Again, seriously, do check out Gordon Strachan online. There's so many brilliant quotes. I just put two to the table there. Uh, but above all, it was his honesty, his integrity. And I just think they're important traits uh, in any walk of life. Uh, but as I say, aware as I am, he bagged silverware and very successfully at Celtic. His premierships uh, trophy cabinet is indeed bear but i would love your thoughts on gordon strack i'm sure you've got some i'm sure you've got memories i'm sure you can remember other fantastic um gordon strack and quotes do continue to keep involved with us tweet at verulam sports uh stick involved with radio verulam throughout saturday evening after we go off the air in just a matter of moments uh it is the phenomenal music mega mix where there will be music for you across all genres across all time spans it's just the personification music wise of eclecticity you're going to enjoy then after which it is eight through ten you are in safe hands with the ever cool dave ellis and his wonderful soul show everything that you need from the world of soul blues and r&b then 10 through midnight keep it eight with 92.6 FM and lock in to Saturday Late Date, where the inimitable Derek Staines, the godfather as I call him, will keep you entertained, unleash rare tunes and just be his wonderful charismatic self. So keep a date with 92.6 FM and enjoy Radio Verum throughout your Saturday evening. So that wraps that, but I'm sure you're delighted to be back with us in the extended version of this uh, successful managers devoid of silverware, where we've slightly flirted with that uh, topic, uh, including Gordon Strachan, I think for understandable reasons, albeit immensely successful, though he was up in Celtic. Jason McKenna, what have you got for us next? So up next, I think is a bit of a... An interesting one. Not one manager, not two, but six. And I'm focusing actually on the Netherlands from 1970 to 1978. And as said previously, some of these managers actually won things with their, their club performances. But I'm looking at the fact that this was the golden generation. For me, probably the best football ever played on the planet until the Barcelona team and then the Spain team of 2008 to let's say 2013-14 period you know that was the best football that the world had seen but how many trophies did they win naught uh, they got to two world cup finals but they never won 
they actually didn't qualify for the 1972 Euros and they were third placed in 1976. So I'm talking about the the six managers that oversaw mm -hmm. the total football period. Uh, we had the Czech Franštek Fardnok, who was from 1970 to 1974. And what's interesting about him was he was sacked three months before the 1974 World Cup so that Rhinus Michaels, almost the chief proponent of total football, could come in and manage that Dutch side for the tournament. But even Rhinus Michaels failed in that attempt. He wouldn't win a trophy with the Netherlands side until 1988, their only mm -hmm. kind of success. But then we had George Noble, we had Jan Verius, we had Ernest Happel, and then Jan, uh, Jan Verius came back from 1978 to 81, and what you can dub as the, the death of total football that happened in 1980. But yes, so total football during the 1970s, Ajax, the club, played some of the finest football ever, achieving what is ridiculous to think of as the perfect home record. 46 wins, no draws, no losses for two full seasons. Not just one, but two full seasons at home. I mean, that is ridiculous stuff in of itself. But the success wasn't shared with the national team of the Euro. Uh, Les Oranges, the Netherlands didn't lift a trophy and mm. it breaks my heart in many ways but this is why I bring these six managers up you know they were in charge of arguably the best footballers of a generation you had the likes of Cruyff but many of his other teammates that played that amazing beautiful football and what is funny is as I said there they didn't qualify for 1972 and 1974 almost didn't happen as well. They qualified on goal difference in the final group game against the Belgians. But the striker for Belgium, Jan Verihan, had actually scored a goal that was ruled offside but was perfectly legal. You know, we're talking almost like the England 1966 kind of stuff. And had it have stood... We wouldn't have seen Holland at 1974. This this mythological period of amazing, amazing football, of, you know, the bridesmaids of football, if we describe them like that, you know, always the bride, uh, bridesmaid, never the bride. That wouldn't have happened. And we wouldn't have seen Cruyff and the amazing antics. But as I said, almost unthinkable to, to look at this. But three months before the World Cup actually got underway Holland changed their manager it made yeah. sense in many ways because Rhinus Michaels had been in charge of that Ajax team that had gone with the perfect kind of home record but you also have to ask the question of whether that disturbed the team psychologically they did so well at the tournament you know they got to the final and when you get to the final it's almost a 50-50 thing but I would have questioned as, you know, a Dutch FA, a Dutch kind of manager, I would have said, well, why are they changing our manager just so close to the tournament? Should he, mm -hmm. they, they should have had Michaels from the start. But again, it might have been to do with contracts and everything like that. But he brought in, he changed the philosophy of the side to that total football stuff. And it was deployed gloriously in the World Cup. You know, there's no other way of kind of describing it. We saw the birth of the Cruyff turn. Uh, the game ended scoreless in that one, but it was a defining football moment. You know, many people 
see it as one of those moments in history of where were you when the Cruyff turn happened and and did you go outside and try it yourself as a kid yeah um there's there's loads of lovely stories and anecdotes of people kind of going I saw the Cruyff turn I went outside and I tried to do it myself with my brothers after the game or sisters or whatever and then I slipped over the football because mm-hmm. it just it it wouldn't compute. It was it was like reinventing the wheel or, or finding a new colour. It was unfathomable kind of stuff. And the way that Holland swept aside all their opponents to get to the final, obviously that game there was, you know, uh, a goalless one and some people said it was useless beauty football. They they mm. had no kind of precision. But then they went on to beat Argentina four nought. They destroyed East Germany and then they took on the other artisans of world football, Brazil. You know, the Jogo Benito kind of group uh, with Pele and, and uh, Carlos Alberto. That team that love passing and beautiful football themselves were set aside by the Dutch. You know, this was... Just a... quickly, Jason, brilliant quote here from uh, a man you've referenced there, uh, Carlos Alberto, um, the captain actually of that Brazilian team. He He's actually quoted as saying... Uh, referencing to Holland. The only team that I've seen that did things differently was Holland at the 74 World Cup in Germany. Since then, everything looks more or less the same to me. There, And I think this is a great word. Carousel style of play was amazing to watch and marvellous for the game. So he lived it, he watched it, he was participating and he was captaining their opponents in Brazil there. And I think that's a fabulous quote from a great player in his own right. Yeah, and it just gives you an insight into even the football footballers, you know, at, at that level realised that this was something special and amazing. And it almost seemed, again, like mythology, like it was written in the stars. Mm-hmm. They had to take on West Germany in the final in Munich. This was yeah. tied up with Dutch national identity. The team had a fierce rivalry with West Germany, but it meant so much more than football to them. But it was heartbreak for them. They lost 2-1 in the end, and they kind of lost themselves towards the end mm. as well. They went 1-0 up because of a penalty, and then as the match went on and they went behind, they they went into almost dirty, traditional kind of football and it was heartbreaking to see because up until that point, they were the fairy tales, you know, they, they were the, the kind of princes of football mm-hmm. and they'd done it their own way and then they forgot themselves. But also it was it was hugely heartbreaking because this was supposed to be the moment that kind of showed you that football could be done different. And instead, mm-hmm. the juggernauts that are Germany, they're so consistent with their football, with dominating opponents and just setting them aside, once again got the result. And again, the worrying thing was in 1976, they got the third place finish, but they didn't win the tournament. And in 1978, the Netherlands team qualified for the World Cup in Argentina, but the team were missing Johan Cruyff due to a kidnapping attempt. And the, the squad still had amazing players from the previous World Cup, but it's kind of like Pelé, George Best, all these great teams in football, whether at club or international level, they have one of those players that can seize the day. You know, you've mm. said it many times yourself, Tony. It's those kind of individuals, managers, players that know how to have the carpe diem. And Cruyff was theirs, 
but they didn't know how to do it. And with Ernst Kappel in, in charge of the side, maybe they didn't believe in the philosophy as well. You know, they, they believed more in Rhinus Michaels and later, you know, Jan Schwerlis was was brought in and out of the side. But the Dutch lost in the final again and it was mm-hmm. two extra time penalty, uh, sorry, two extra time goals that again broke the hearts of the Les Oranges. It, it's horrible, horrible stuff to see. And of course, there were other legends born in that tournament, but this was one where almost total football was put to bed for a long while. This was kind of the world going, they've had two goes at this and they haven't got it right. And as I mentioned at the start, total football died after the Euro 1980. It was the last tournament in which the total football team qualified, but Cruyff had well retired from the team by then. And despite you know, them being, I wouldn't say favourites, but they should have done well in that tournament. They didn't even get out of the group stages. And maybe going back to that quote a little bit earlier, a lot of people called it useless beauty. You know, you're playing lovely, lovely passing football, all these movements off the ball. Every player can play a different position. But what use is it at the international level? Maybe you need something else. Well, Maybe in the end, you know, as I said here, these six managers didn't win it with total football, with that Dutch side. But Vincente Del Bosque, Pep Guardiola, uh, maybe even to an extent Marcello Bielsa, these are managers that in the end, a little bit later in time, they found success with it. Maybe it was just too ahead of its time, almost a bit like Sam Allardyce a little bit earlier. It took 40 years later but in the 2010 world cup there was finally a total football side that lifted the world cup and what i think is even more astounding is that cruyff was proud of that moment he didn't care that it was spain he didn't care that the team that they beat was his dutch side he was happy that total football had won out Mm -hmm. and that the beauty of football was remained he was even disgusted with his own Dutch team that they they went out there aggressively and forgot his own kind of philosophy and so maybe in a way I should include seven managers there and say that one of them did but a lot a lot later and not with this Dutch side so for me six managers who were really good managers you know Reinus Michaels at club level won it all with Ajax but at international level these six failed Mm -hmm with the greatest group of footballing talent, you know, for a, maybe for generations. And, yeah, I, I don't know your thoughts and feelings on the, the Dutch team of the 1970s. Is it always a question for you of what if, Tony? Or do you think that maybe they just didn't have enough uh, and they didn't seize the day? Was it their own problem? Do you know, I love this, Jason. I think it's a little slice of genius. I love the the angle that you've taken here. Um, And I've not seen much of them play, so I can't really comment with authority. Obviously, everybody who's got any affinity for sports in the least is aware of that Cruyff turn and images of him just turning defenders inside and out. No questions about it. One of the best players ever to lace boots. Um, But it is fascinating there to see, indeed, 
Holland have the inauspicious record of playing and losing in three World Cup finals. You mentioned there the two sandwiching that uh, golden era run, 74 and 78, and you referenced towards the end there that 2010 uh, defeat, seeing, though, nevertheless, the victory for total football. It's a great, great narrative, isn't it? A couple of few things. I want to just kind of throw this back to you. First and foremost, to what extent I wonder is there so much pressure that's applied when there there is this moniker, this label, quote unquote, golden generation, which, of course, England perhaps have wrestled with to varying degrees. And I'm drawing a line under Pandora's box before I start ranting. Um, (laughs) But I guess I just want your take on the the pressures internally uh, that's applied when you've almost got that fate of a nation the psychology of a nation resting on you and it's obviously talent and the beautiful style is able to get uh, the touch team to the final but then in finals really oftentimes it's not so much about talent that's a given at that level in a final it's about will it's about uh, just as you say carpe diem and I wondered if that level of pressure is heightened and magnified when that title golden generation is applied when your takes on that but this is a sort of a, a double whammy question and the second part to that is you mentioned that um, this golden generation and beautiful total football ended or died in 1980. I would suggest to you that it just lay dormant because that 88 Dutch team uh, consisting of Van Basten, who, if not injury rattled, I think no questions would be in the same breath as a Messi, as a uh, Ronaldo, indeed a Cruyff preceding him. Of course, there was the wonderfully dreadlocked uh, Hollett doing his thing in that time and just so many other exciting footballers who would make any world 11 and of course they not only combined that skill but also um, maximize their potential and claim silverware so twofold question number one what to extent do you think the pressure generally of the title gold generation is and how it impacted on that dutch era throughout the 70s and then was this golden generation really just a prelude to that phenomenal Dutch teams of the 80s? Jason, your thoughts on that one-two combination question? <laughs> it sounds almost like a boxing one-two combination, you know, hit me up there with, with two really big kind of huge questions. And I think, you know, I'll take them one at a time. The pressure of the golden generation, I think maybe maybe I'm going against something that I've said here in the past, you know, that I think that footballers have to deal with pressures but when it comes almost to international football getting to finals I think there is an added element there especially if you're a a country like Holland that has never been there before or in this sense they've had three failures so the next time Mm -hmm. they get there it will be there in their minds and I think maybe there is an added pressure of golden generations when it comes to international football is because realistically you only get a pop at it once every four years and I think that is a huge huge problem because Mm -hmm. at club football you could argue it and criticize a little bit more because you you get a go every season you know you get four chances in in a golden generation at club level before you get to move on to a world cup whereas the world cup generation realistically probably 
too pops at it because age yeah. age comes into it. That's eight years of football, and then you, you're kind of done there. If you start even younger, maybe three pops at it. But even somebody like Pele only won three World Cups, and that that's the record. So. I do get that there's an added little bit of pressure, but I always kind of go back to the point that players play in pressured situations year in, year out. And especially if they're part of like the Ajax golden generation at a club level, they're used to dealing with finals. They're used to coming up against the biggest and the best, having a tough time uh, and sorting out. So maybe there is that added mantle of this is our only chance in four years, a mm -hmm. bit like an Olympic uh, situation as well you know Olympians have to have that in the back of their mind but you know every Olympian that you talk about the greatest ones instead of folding in that situation take it up and make it their own a bit like Michael Phelps that you referenced last week he took the people going he'll never do this he'll never do that mm -hmm. as as almost a dare as a bet you know, I'm going to prove them wrong. And I think that's what a good golden generation does. Whereas a poor one kind of blames that title and and says, oh, no, you've added too much pressure to us. You, mm -hmm. should, you should take it as a bet and go, yeah, we are the best generation and seize it and believe in it. So, yeah, I, I think it's a fair question. But maybe going back to what we've said before, both of us, Tony, is that the best kind of do it. And there is an unluckiness with football. I will say that as well, is that great teams, and we've seen it maybe with Hungary in the 1950s, mm -hmm. and that there is the debate of whether it was a legitimate kind of final, but they got to a World Cup final with um, maybe the, the total football original team, and they didn't win it with Frank Puskas, you know, a really good golden generation there. There's plenty of golden generation opportunities that happen and luck mm -hmm. doesn't favour good teams all the time in football. Luck only strikes 50% of the time. So that there's that mm -hmm. element as well. So I don't want to be hypercritical because things do happen in finals. A weird goal, a divot in the football and then it bounces off and then that kind of ruins your final. But the question of... Did total football lay dormant? Um, the, the Netherlands team of the 1980s is a slightly different style, you know, because obviously during the 1980s, we saw the birth of the Italian style of football with the high yeah. line and things like that. So that's why... And obviously so much of that Dutch side was influenced there with playing at Milan, for instance, Van Basten and Hullet and so many others. So yeah, that's a really interesting point. Go on. Yes, yeah, so what I would say is their kind of football would be much more different. And, and that's why I say that Del Bosque and Barcelona are the, are the true proponents of mm -hmm. total football because the, the element to total football is, is obviously the passing, but it's also this element of anybody can play everywhere and also mm -hmm. the false nine element. And I would say that Van Basten was a more traditional forward. I would say that each player had a more kind of curated and specific position and again the influences of high press and kind of the squeezing of the pitch is much more different you know total football and this is what maybe found out Spain a little bit later on was they they didn't like to pressure the ball they liked to to possess it rather than pressure it and this is what 
Pep Guardiola has done well with Man City. Mm -hmm. This is what Klopp has done well, is kind of Pep has got the total football but brought in pressure and Klopp is, is you know, Gengen press and something different. So the, the football of the 1980s is, is very different to the Dutch of the 70s. But I don't want to take it away because Rhinus Michaels was the manager. And maybe that shows the genius of Michaels that he could incorporate both styles into the 1988 team. So I think it's a really fair question there, Tony. And I think it's a complicated answer. But I think the 88 side of the Dutch maybe brought out the best elements of Milan, of the kind of era of football that we were living in but also of that maybe ill-fated Dutch side. But, um, yes, it's a really good point there. And I just wish, I do wish that that Dutch side had at least won one World Cup because the questions over total football, that possession-based mm -hmm. football, remained until Pep kind of showed the world different. And now everybody wants to play it. Everybody either wants to do Gengen press like Liverpool and Klopp or they want the possession football of Barcelona, Pep, and and now his incumbent Manchester City side. Do you know, it's a really fascinating conversation. I'm really delighted you brought that to this uh, piece. A really innovative angle on this. And I'm sure you listening have your opinions. Do you have memories of Total Football? Love to hear your views. Tweeters at Verulam Sports. Um, is there a way to find the perfect form of football? Have we found it yet? Does such a thing exist? Love to hear from you. Tweeters at Verulam Sports. Tweeters at Verulam Sport. Email us sports at radioverulam.com. Continue to keep involved. As always, I want to say a big thank you because each week we debate a topic and it's based on your choosing. So thank you for this fascinating topic. And to wrap this one up, it was referenced right at the start with one of our uh, listeners' tweets. And I'm going to go for the man, Mauricio Pochettino. He was, of course, a centre-back in his career. He had a 17-year playing career, of which 10 of those were in La Liga with Espanyol, in which he won two Copa del Rey trophies. He'd earned 20 caps for Argentina in his playing career. Uh, but really, it's as a manager that he's most noted. Although, notably, unlike my Gordon Strachan selection, he is literally an innovative manager, a very successful manager, a highly acclaimed manager with no silverware. But his managerial journey began with the team that he represented in Spain for so long, 10 years. He was a player at Espanyol and his managerial career began just there in 2009. And he managed his old team for four seasons. He then moved to the Premier League and becoming only the second Argentinian to manage in England in the Premier League after Ozzy Ardiles to Spurs many years before. Uh, he initially began his premiership managerial career with Southampton and he'd lead them to a very creditable eighth place in the Premier League, which was their highest league finish since 2002-2003. And he would record their highest points tally since the Premier League began, playing this Bielsa style, this high press style of football, which is his team's trademark. He then would move to Spurs and help them to three straight top three finishes. And of course, the 
Champions League final, the all-English affair, where they would lose 2-0 in Madrid to Liverpool. However, let's not lose sight of the fact that that was the very first time that Spurs ever reached the Champions League final in all their long history. Um, in May 2014, uh, Pochettino joined Spurs, becoming their 10th manager in 12 years. It had been an absolute managerial merry-go-round, a real mayhem, chaotic situation at Spurs before the Argentinian Pochettino took the realm, or the helm, sorry, back in 2014. Um, the following January, he'd get to a, a, a final, uh, the League Cup final, losing out to Chelsea by two goals to nil at Wembley. Then in 2015-2016, Spurs were in contention to actually win the Premier League. Um, you'll actually remember that season, I'm sure. It was famously the one that Leicester City uh, and the Tinkerman Ranieri won the title. Uh, but Spurs, who were right in contention, uh, couldn't even finish second, where Arsenal surpassed them, finishing runners-up that year. Spurs, they were well in the game, right up until a two-all draw with Chelsea, handed the title to Leicester City. Um, the following season, 2016 season, Spurs got off to an absolutely amazing start. 12 matches unbeaten to start the campaign. Um, but they would ultimately finish uh, runners-up on 86 points. That was their best ever Premier League finish and also their best Premier League points haul. In fact, that season was notable, not quite as notable, Jason, as the uh, IX team you referenced from the 70s, who were literally unbeatable at home. But nevertheless, it was an unbelievable fortress that Pochettino created. Uh, the Spurs side in that 2016 season did finish unblemished at home, unbeaten at home for the first time since 1964-1965. And indeed, that was their highest league finish uh, that season, finishing runners-up. Um, that was the highest league finish since 1962-63 with Bill Nichols, uh, Nicholas at the helm. So you can't fault the facts. This is almost history-defining success. But again, it depends how one truly defines success, doesn't it? And zero silverware. Uh, the 2019 season was telling. And um, they reached the Champions League final. Uh, fascinatingly, and almost a gift from the radio gods, providing a wonderful link, beating the awesome IX side in the semi-finals, uh, drawing three all, having come from behind twice, but winning on away goals. And as I've already mentioned, though, they will go on to lose in Madrid to the all-English final, losing to Liverpool by two goals to nil. Now, our listeners who maybe have uh, sort of elephantine-type memories might refer uh, or recall me saying, actually, on uh, Verum Sports, as it was then, that I was concerned for the fate of the losing manager in that final. Because, obviously, now we all know how successful Klopp is and has become but there was that monkey on Klopp's head, not forgetting. He was the guy who had played beautiful football. Again, that similarity in styles uh, colliding, that high press, high energy football, uh, almost total football-esque. Um, but Klopp, again, no trophies really in his career. 
uh, up until that date, despite notable successes. Ditto for Pochettino. And I said way back then that I was actually concerned for the loser of that final because I didn't predict that the winner would go on to the kind of uh, dynasty building that it looks like Klopp has in his capability. But rather, I was more concerned for how things would go for the losing finalist, who would once again have another year with no silverware, another year where much was promised. Again, in this wonderful All England final, which was actually a little bit of a dab squid on the pitch. But the result is what counted. And subsequently, Klopp has gone on to great success, dynasty building, as he could well be at Liverpool. Whereas a borderline prophetic, it would seem, the fate of Pochettino at Spurs was not a promising one. Indeed, perhaps suffering from the Champions League hangover and after a very stuttering start to the 2019-2020 season, Pochettino was dismissed as manager of Spurs with his team languishing in 14th in the Premier League. Maybe premature, but I, as I said back then, and I still believe, the pressure on his shoulders, the need to turn this talent this great squad that he assembled, this beautiful football that they were renowned and revered for into something tangible was intense and getting more intense by the second. Nevertheless, he's not yet got back into management, but his name always circles. I'm sure they will be silverware in the Pochettino career as a manager before it is all said and done. Let's not forget his successes. Espanyol, he represented as a manager for 161 games, clocking up 53 wins, 80, 38 draws, 70 losses for a 32.9% win ratio. That wonderful run at Southampton, again, let's not forget, steering them to an eighth place finish in the Premier League and the Premier League's highest points haul for Southampton. Uh, 60 games, 23 wins, 18 draws and 19 defeats with an impressive 38.3% win ratio. Then that run at Spurs, such a glorious one, although inglorious for so many reasons. Nearly 300 games for Spurs as manager, 293, clocking up 159 wins, 62 draws and 72 defeats for an incredibly impressive 54.3% win ratio, although no wins in the biggest of moments. Jason? Your thoughts on Pochettino, who, let's not forget, was included. Tonight we're dissecting, debating and analysing wonderful managers, very talented men, overseen great clubs, but no trophies. Thoughts on Pochettino? Pochettino is a deeply talented manager and maybe in many ways he's Bielsa-elect. You know, he's maybe hopefully somebody that can bring on the ideology of of that man that genius and bring it to a club and and have some notable success because it's sad that probably two of his biggest proponents um Guardiola has has had undoubted success but he's an amalgamation of Bielsa and many other ideas whereas Pochettino probably is the you know his um protege and, and the person that learned off him most because of his time at Newell Old Boys and that learning curve there. You know, as an Arsenal fan, I, I should probably not like him too much, but 
I just have to be realistic. You know, football, you can have objective observations and, mm-hmm. and putting any sort of things aside. He did very well with Espanyol. You know, they're not a big club and he he did well in the sense of kind of taking on the big boys. Uh, he, he did well that he kind of took on Barcelona in the Copa del Rey and these kind of situations there he didn't you know maybe do what Atletico Madrid did um, and and break the duopoly of Barcelona Mm -hmm. and Real Madrid but he still set up a a very kind of quality side there and actually began to display you know the characteristics of what I would say is the modern manager of setting up the academy at Espanyol as well Mm -hmm. with a, a focus and a clear system and a philosophy to work towards and then again, you know, coming in at Southampton, he did a very similar thing. He worked with a very small budget and created uh, an amazing Southampton squad. You know, yep. one of the best probably since this current season with Ralph Hassenhutel. You know, they played great way. They had their eighth place finish. They didn't quite make Europe, you know, like under Gordon Strachan, but they still did fantastic work. Uh, there and then at Tottenham you know he's an undoubted success he saw over a period of consistency of making European every season and I was sad in many ways to see him sacked in the way that he was Um, you know I don't like Tottenham because of my own personal allegiances but to the same extent for a manager of you know who really created the modern Tottenham club he's he's almost like Ferguson in many instances with Manchester United that he create the modern Tottenham club that it is now but unlike Ferguson he never got success when he was there and if they do go on to win any silverware this season it has to be credited with him partially contributing to it but on the flip side you do have to criticise his his ability to almost see it over the line. He had many opportunities to, you know, get some sort of silverware at uh, at Tottenham. Maybe he didn't prioritise the boring tournament of the League Cup, you know, because you've said it many times yourself, Tony, and I think you're so, so right that success breeds success. And it, even a, a small thing like the League Cup could grow into an FA Cup or a Champions League or a league title because the players then believe in themselves for those big crunch games. And I think Arsenal forgot that for a while under Arsene Wenger and lost many finals. And that's why our title charges, similarly to Tottenham's during the period fell apart and so Pochettino has to be kind of revered in many ways but there is that massive asterisk that will always be there that he was but to an extent and his sacking in November 2019 there was two trains of thought in my mind they either had to back Pochettino for a Pochettino generation 2.0 with Tottenham which is a very viable idea Because, you know, if you look at Manchester City now, they could either get rid of Pep Guardiola because, let's be honest, the the team does need rebuilding. But you leave somebody to rebuild the squad and Pochettino's done it once 
and almost got it there on a shoestring budget. Now with the bigger finances at Tottenham, maybe he could have built a bigger and better squad. Or you go kind of down the route of somebody who is successful already to replace him. And that's what they did with Mourinho. That was the second kind of thought. And for me, there, there just will remain that footnote with him forever until he wins something. He is Klopp, but even more enhanced. You know, Klopp at least won the title with Dortmund. He won cups. Yeah. Whereas there's nothing there with Pochettino. And until he gets that, there'll always be that question of, yes, he, he plays good football, but does he have the mentality of a winner to see it over when you need it? Because it's all well and good playing good football, but if you can't win on the big days, does it even matter? I mean, what do you think on that, Tony? Look, I'm on record. Um, I, 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 am, I say this all the time. Winners win. They find a way. You know, and... Ultimately, you are re- judged on results. And when you look back on your life as a sports star, as a manager, you're not, you're not really looking at moments. You want to look at something tangible. And he's yet to deliver in that category. I mentioned earlier, and again, obviously, as a, as a Leeds fan, have a massive appreciation for Bielsa. And I think in many ways, um, Pochettino is obviously a disciple of the uh, Bielsa school of football and philosophy on football. Again, it's all high press. It's very, very energetic. But the oldest cliche in football, that it is a marathon that is not a sprint. It will exhaust players. And I think sometimes that's that overarching commitment to the philosophy is, again, almost foolish if it is not taken into account the nature of the... Of the of the game itself, of the run itself, of the the sheer attritional run that any uh, league campaign requires, and that's why I fear Bielsa, uh, again for all of his genius, has so very little silverware in his uh, in his locker. Flip it, and again look at the my man Jose, the special one. Again, inheriting a great Spurs team, but let's not forget when he first took over the mantle there, a lot of pressure on him. He didn't get off to a flying start. You show me a Spurs fan that's disgruntled about Jose right now, and I tell you, they don't exist. They've vanished. Uh, but the point is, Akin, he took a small kind of provincial team, Porto, all the way to Champions League glory, okay? And that cemented his uh, his ego, really. That was his calling card. And then what he's done subsequently, it's utterly phenomenal, but literally trophies each and every single way you care to look. And ultimately, whether you like him or you loathe him, his, his silverware speaks volumes and gives him instant credibility. People love to play for Pochettino. People admire his football. Uh, pundits adore it. But whilst there is no question about it, the beautiful game, Whilst we've had many, many conversations, and I mean full concurrency, that football, like all sports, is in the entertainment business, the business end, more entertaining, is what you win. It's how you convert uh, results. When that blistering, uh, dynamite, attacking, total football just ain't quite clicking. And over a whole campaign, particularly in England, particularly with the Christmas uh, non-hiatus, you can't click every week. It's just unrealistic. Jason, you'll know it yourself when you were uh, impressed, of course, by that unbeatable Arsenal team who went the season unbeaten, right? There were games 
where they were at best mediocre, but they didn't lose. Okay, and that's what you need. And I'm not sure, it's a bit of a catch-22. I'd love to be proven wrong. And I've already said in the piece that I do believe that Pochettino is well capable of claiming silverware in his career going forwards. And then it could be a la Klopp. It could be the floodgates open. But he needs to do some soul-searching. He needs to find a way not to um, lose sight of the thing that's made his name, this beautiful, aggressive, total football style. That would be utterly wrong, and it would find him out. But to find a way to best manage that for a longer time span, and also to be willing, when it's not working, to sacrifice at the altar of beautiful football a way to not lose or win dower. Both trump losing but playing magnificent to the eyes football. Yeah. Here's the thing. It is an entertainment game. I get that. Fans pay good money and they want to they want to witness uh, good football. Great. I grant you that. But right now, you show me a Spurs fan who's not over the moon. And we all know that the Marino hasn't yet won anything at Spurs. But victories are what people remember and winning silverware is what your legacy is built upon and until catch 22 styly pochettino can achieve that then it is that monkey on his back he'll get back in the game i don't doubt that i don't doubt that for one second and you cannot deny that run of success at spurs and as you rightly say the cane uh, song Axis, which is on the cusp of being the most prolific in Premier League history, was largely assembled through Pochettino's vision. Uh, so you cannot deny what he's uh, brought to the Tottenham table. But there isn't even a morsel in terms of feasting on trophies. And like I say, that's what you judged on. And for me, being hypercritical... I can't really extend it beyond that. He needs to show how to win. And that could be, as you say, a League Cup, an FA Cup. Ferguson's uh, dynasty, we mentioned, was, of course, built on an FA Cup run, where, of course, uh, it's almost mythological. They were on the cusp of being knocked out. It was a late Mark Robbins' equaliser that took them to the ultimately final where they beat Crystal Palace, Manchester United way back when. By the way, last all-English uh, final between two sets of uh, 11 English players, that final, incidentally. Um, but the point's dead simple. Victory breeds victory. Winning is a habit. And Pochettino is immense at creating a culture of success. But I'm not convinced he's got the... Um, ability to see beyond his own philosophy for the better picture of the team that philosophy will always create winning style and they will win his teams more often than not but will they win in the long haul at the moment we can only go by what we have the facts themselves and that is to say literally not just briefly your thoughts am i being hypercritical I don't think you're being hypercritical or, or even anything near that. I think it's just a fact of his situation. And I I really respect Pochettino, but until he wins something, you, you can't say either way. And I think you've hit the nail on the head with the explanation that almost 
philosophy needs to be put aside uh, to win games. You know, Ferguson was not, you know, against winning dirty. Uh, Mourinho isn't. You know, even to an extent, Klopp sometimes just goes out there and is pragmatic. He'll play four up front instead of the 4-3-3 or he'll go a bit more defensive. We saw it in the Champions League final. They weren't their usual swashbuckling selves. Whereas sometimes over-commitment to a philosophy can cause you. And, you know, they're, they're both arch enemies and rivals, but Wenger and Pochettino probably are, are in similar veins here in the same decade. You know, Wenger mm-hmm. was so committed to his passing and beautiful football that Arsenal often lost games because of conceding too many goals. Whereas Pochettino, I think he he drew too many games. Um, and I can't remember which season, but he went through it with the most draws in a, in a Premier League. And it was, it was worrying because... Sorry, uh, my point is that... Um, Sorry, they didn't have any draws. That that was my point. And that they didn't have that kind of grit to almost buckle mm. down and either, you know, see it as a draw or as a win. So the, the, he had the, the kind of record for a long while where he wouldn't get a draw and it would either be a win or a loss. And it was always in the last minutes as well. And then when it came to, you know, the push came to shove in his last season, so, you know, the 2019-20 season where he's sacked, he almost abandoned that ideology. And looking at the metrics and looking at the tactics, football commentators quickly picked up that they weren't playing his style of football. And he almost went too far the other way of... Maybe the players lost the ability to do it, as you said there, the the pressing style, if it doesn't have another kind of plan B or a different setup, is hugely draining, both physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. And and we've seen this with Pep Guardiola at Barcelona. He was only there for three or four seasons because he had to leave because the, the club wouldn't back him up. He needed to overhaul the squad because they just weren't physically up to it anymore. And they were tired and they questioned the methodology. And, you know, the players loved Pep, but they didn't love the work rate. And then it happened yep. at Bayern Munich. And it, it hap- it's happening at Manchester City at the moment. You can't keep pressing football going without rejuvenation. You have to kind of smash it and recreate a new squad. And Tottenham probably looked at it and thought replacing the manager with somebody else is cheaper than rejuvenating the squad. And mm-hmm. it's a sad thing because maybe Pochettino was owed you know, another chance to rebuild the squad, but that's modern football for you. You know, managers don't stick at clubs very long. It's such a rare thing. And the, the new system is constant replacement with new managers. You know, instead of giving a manager a bit more time and to create something, it's let's smash this up with a new manager and try a different way. And, you know, that's going to hang over Pochettino until he can get to the day where he's gone, I built this squad at whatever club he moves to next, whether it be Manchester United or Bayern Munich or, or Real Madrid or whatever. And he goes, look, I've won three three trophies over the last three seasons. Now can I get my funds to build my second squad? And Tottenham mm-hmm. kind of looked at it and go, well, you didn't win any in your first round. Why should we give a second round? And you know, you, you have to kind of say... 
that is a, a fair assumption or I don't know, Tony, do you think that they didn't look at the true context of where Tottenham were and where he brought them? It's a great question, Jason. Like I said, I mean, what a run. Three straight third places, the first ever Champions League final. But again, no trophies. Um, as I say, I did, I did mention it way back when that uh, All English Champions League final was in place, that I was concerned for the loser that day. And the start to the season, again, languishing 14th. I've got no doubt about it. Spurs would have been fine. I don't think anybody would, it was any really fearful that they were going to get relegated. But it was that hangover. And maybe what that showed was that that took an awful lot out of the players. And yeah, you're right to identify that maybe um, he, I wouldn't even say overcompensated, but just kind of lost a sense of identity on the back of that. And, and again, I've queried the need for that to at least have an ability to question the philosophy. But to go so radical the other way is also a reflection of a man not quite sure of himself. And I think that also reflected the results. And I think he also therefore lost that sense of credibility that you need to be a manager at the very highest level. And I don't doubt that he'll bounce back. I've got no questions about it in my head that he will go on. And I'm sure he's got the uh, intellect, the footballing IQ, to learn these important lessons. And if he's able to do that, allied to what he's already assembled, his own uh, understanding of the game, his ability to uh, instill uh, qualities in players and commit to a mode of football, which is glorious. I've got no doubt if he can apply the lessons and tweak what he's already mastered, this guy is a great bet for any high-caliber club, and I'm sure, therefore, there's every chance he will be holding aloft silverware before too long. But no, I think faced with a moment there, uh, and based on the run of results in the early 2019 season, you could argue it was a little bit premature. You could argue that his efforts in the recent Spurs history uh, allowed for a little bit of leeway and a chance to rebuild. But you get the sense that that was a massive moment that lost to Liverpool in the Champions League final in a game which was there for the winning. Liverpool weren't exactly glorious themselves that night. And uh, I just think his time had run its course at Spurs. And I'm fascinated now to see his next uh, steps managerially. I'm utterly convinced he will be a prime time, big name manager in the very near future. But for our here and now, as always, a massive thank you to you, the listener, for this wonderful topic of debate. Make sure you stick eagle-eyed to Verum Sports' Twitter feed over the coming days because we're going to have three more Christmas-cracking choices for you to choose from and lead us down our next few weeks' sports casting and podcasting conversations. For tonight, always, Jason... Loving your work. Love it generally. Love it always. But I really think you've played a blinder this evening with your fascinating uh, take on this managerial no-win uh, conversation. So, again, a big thank you. Keep well. Keep safe. A massive happy Christmas. And wishing everybody nothing but every continued joy and success. All the best. <laughs>